Our text this morning, got two mics. Our text this morning is Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Uh, You'll find that printed in your bulletin. Also, if you prefer to use one of the, the Pew Bibles, it's on page 202. So again, it's Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Hear now God's word to us from the book of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashereth. And therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishayim. So the land had rest forty years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word to us, and we pray that even right now, that you would open it to us by your Spirit. Open us to your word and your word to us, that we might see you, our great God, that we might know you better, that we might be struck by both your great holiness and your great mercy uh, to us, your people. We lift these prayers up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you ever wonder, somebody asked me once... how a pastor knows how to pronounce all these names. There is no class on that in seminary, so if Kashan Rasham doesn't sound right to you, you can insert your own pronunciation there. Well, this summer, as we've said, we're looking at the book of Judges, and as we go through this series, each week we're coming back to one overarching theme, and it's that uh, in the book of Judges, we, we really see that the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depth to which it reaches. It's seen almost in contrast. Because again and again, we see some of the darkness of the life of God's people, but again and again, we see God's grace in action working on their behalf. So this morning, um, we're going to see that as we get to the first of the actual judges in the book of Judges. The judges were these military leaders that God would raise up to bring relief for his people. That's how we get the name of the book. And their, their job as a judge, more even than ruling, was to save, was to bring deliverance. And so we're going to take a look at, at the story this morning about this one particular um, judge, Othniel. And we're going to, in it, we're going to talk about this question that maybe has occurred to you before. Uh, if you've been around Christian things for a long time, you've heard people talking about having a personal relationship with God. And maybe occasionally you stop and think, what, what exactly does that mean? And I can only imagine if you're someone who is maybe um, not someone who's put your faith in Jesus and it's something you're thinking about and looking at, then when you hear somebody talk about having a personal relationship with God, what in the world does that mean? Well, we're going to see one little piece of what that means in our passage today. Um, for some of us, I, this might be appropriate because when you really think about your own relationship with God, it may well be fairly impersonal. You talk about having a personal relationship with God, but maybe for you it feels anything but personal. 
Um, maybe it feels very distant and remote. In fact, maybe you uh, essentially have a deist approach to God, that he's someone who stands far off, who maybe created the world and got things spinning, but it basically uh, stands away from us and at best looks at us from a distance without any real involvement in our lives. And that might be why some of us, though maybe we've been pro- professing Christians for a long time, maybe all our lives, maybe that's why some of us feel actually fairly hard and frozen, detached from God. Uh, you might remember the famous quote by Marie Antoinette, that nothing tastes. And maybe in your spiritual life you feel this way, that nothing tastes. Well, Christianity actually tells us that God is not remote, he's not distant. In fact, he's very near to us. Um, and it tells us this astounding truth that we can actually personally know him. We can actually have a relationship with him. And so we're going to see just three aspects about um, this idea of a personal relationship with God in this story. Three things we're going to look at. Personal sin, personal anger, and personal restoration. Personal sin, personal anger, personal restoration. First, we're going to take a look at the fact that sin is personal. If we're in a personal relationship with God, then sin itself is personal. It's against a person. Look at verse uh, 7, the first part of it. Uh, the people of Israel uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. People of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They actually sinned personally. Now, again, we tend to think, oftentimes when we think of God, that we're living in this impersonal um, relationship with someone who's far off. Maybe an impersonal, maybe God to you is this impersonal judge. You live in this cosmic scheme of justice. You find yourself on the wrong end of that justice. Often you feel, and it just feels far away. Uh, several months ago, I read the story. There was a, there's a, um, a small private museum in England. Visitors come in every day, and <clears throat> there's a big staircase that's the main centerpiece of this museum. And at the bottom of the staircase are three very precious vases uh, from the Qing dynasty in China, several hundred years old. So precious that they probably refer to them as vases, not vases. So there are these three vases, and the museum has owned these for 40 years, and they've been sitting down on a shelf at the bottom of the stairs all this time, one of their precious pieces of their collection. And one day, a tourist, uh, the article mercifully did not mention his name, it didn't mention his nationality, well, he's coming down the stairs, and he trips on the way down the stairs, and he knocks over all three of these vases, and they come crashing to the ground into a thousand pieces. And uh, the article quoted the spokesperson of the museum who said, we, we regret um, this incident. We are so thankful that our, our visitor to our museum was not hurt. And we have um, restoration artists at work right now trying to restore the vases, which no doubt they're still in the process of. But can you imagine being this, this guy? You're the guy. 300-year-old vases, and you come tripping down the stairs. But what's interesting about this, he, he did something, an offense, accidental though it was, but it was an offense against a museum. It's sort of hard to get your relational arms around a museum. And even in the article, they didn't mention anybody's names. They just referred to the spokesman from the museum. It's hard to imagine something more impersonal and distant than that. But sometimes that's the way we think about our own offenses and our own approach to God, that it is that kind of distance. We have offended the museum. Or um, 
As you know, this past year we've seen several court cases discussing um, whether or not we can have the Ten Commandments etched in stone on courthouse walls. Now, regardless of what you think of that issue, sometimes we tend to think again about God in exactly this way. He's the, he is the great lawgiver, which he certainly is, but only the distant lawgiver. That somehow God is summed up, etched on a wall, cold and remote. Now, again, I would say that's not a, a healthy view of the Ten Commandments, but we can look at it that way sometimes. That it's this uh, justice system that is so removed from us. Or maybe, I'm sure this doesn't apply to any of you, maybe someone in here has at one point in their life gotten a speeding ticket, as I have. Um, there I was going through the mountains of North Carolina. Suddenly I got pulled over, um, was informed that I was going over the speed limit. I can tell you the story later about how I'm entirely innocent and it was a mistake. Uh, but there I was. I had, uh, I had broken a law. I had broken a rule of society. And now a representative of that law had come to pull me over. Now, I don't remember the name of the state trooper. And I feel certain that he doesn't remember my name. He was just an agent of the system pulling me over. And though I was angry at the time, when you stop and think about it, he was only doing his job, right? He didn't make up the speeding limits. Uh, he just had a quota to fulfill, and I helped him do that. But, um, <laughs> but again, I think sometimes the way we relate to God is exactly like this. Again, it's not a sin against a person. It's against, it's against the system. It's like getting a speeding ticket. There's no pers- there was no personal relationship between me and that state trooper. He only represented, represented something that I felt like was towering over me. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that we live under the gaze of a person, a personal God. A God who actually has a relationship with his people. It's not just a system. It's interesting that uh, here in verse 7 it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know what a, you know what a powerful thing sight is, and what a powerful thing it is to actually meet someone's eyes. This used to happen to me on, on campus um, over at the college. You'd be walking down one of the brick paths, and, and maybe there are not many people around, and someone else is coming your way, and they look up, and you look up, and, and, and you sort of glance at each other for a second, and then, of course, you quickly look away. And the problem when there's only a couple of you, and there's a great distance, how many times do you look up and look down without a, you know... What you don't do is just start staring at the person. As I'm making people uncomfortable right now. You don't just start staring at the person as they're walking. Why? Because there's something so powerful about meeting the gaze of someone. God tells us that we are actually in the sight of the Lord. That he actually does gaze at us and invites us to meet his gaze. Have you ever noticed that if, like me, you've ever got a speeding ticket that oftentimes it's easier to pay the speeding ticket than it is to actually look uh, your spouse, your friend, your child in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I need your forgiveness. It's almost easier to live in the sight of an impersonal system than to actually have to deal with one another. And it's almost more frightening for some of us at times to know that we really do live under the gaze of a God who actually does look at us, who actually does pursue relationship with us. Second half of verse 7 says that the people of Israel forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Ashereth. They transferred their allegiance. They turned away from the person they were following and serving and served something else. 
Again, it wasn't just this impersonal system. They were in relationship, and they chose to break that relationship, to put their allegiance somewhere else, to transfer their uh, relationship, their service, their affection. Uh, For those of you who have seen the movie version of um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I saw it with students a number of months ago, and I was struck by the scene where Aslan is being led to the stone table, and his enemies stand there around him in the torchlight, mocking him, jeering him. All these creatures who owe their very existence to him are shaking their fist at him. That's what happens to the people of Israel here when they transfer their allegiance from their God to someone or something else. That's what we talked about last week. When we uh, chase after anything but God, when we give anything... uh, that we give our allegiance and our love to anything but God. Now, for some of you, when Christians talk about sin, that's almost incomprehensible to you because you don't see this aspect of it being a sin against a person. And the Christianity of the Bible isn't cold, it's not remote, it's not detached. It's about a, a relationship between God and his people. It's actually the very heart of intimacy and connection. God isn't distant. He isn't impersonal. In fact, the more uncomfortable thing for us sometimes is that God is so close, so personal, so engaged in our lives. Now, we talked about God's, that our sin being personal, and we have to understand sort of the edge of that to really get the fact that God's anger is also personal. And that's not a word we like to talk about very often, but I'm struck by the fact that it's actually in our text. Look in verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Mesopotamians. Uh, God sells them into the hands of his enemies. God, this personal God, in relationship with his people, when they abandon him, he brings in the hand of their enemies uh, to discipline them. It says he's actually angry with them. It's a personal God who's been offended, and he responds personally. Now, this enemy, Kushan Rishayim, uh, in Hebrew, the name actually means double wickedness. God brings in um, a people who don't even follow him to bring rebuke and to bring correction to his own people. Now, that's going to raise objections for a lot of folks. Uh, Maybe for one reason. Maybe because a God of love wouldn't really get angry. Where do... How can we, isn't this below God somehow to think that he would actually get angry if he really is a God of love? Now, there's something that sounds very right about that. God's God of love. He loves his people. How can he get angry? But there's two pretty serious errors in that as well. One is that it's a low view of God and his holiness. That God is our creator and our sustainer, and to rebel against him is to commit the greatest offense in the universe to turn our back on the one who has made us for himself. It's a low view of God. But ironically, uh, to say that a God of love would not ever get angry or would not punish his people, it's also a low view of mankind. Because you think, ultimately, um, that mankind does not have much weight. That there's not much responsibility for the things that we do. That the things that we do, in the end, just don't matter. And so I think if you, if you retreat from dealing with what the Bible tells us about a God who actually does get angry, not only do you lose a high view of God, you also lose a high view of mankind because you've now said that nothing matters, 
that God couldn't possibly care. Why would he pay attention to what we do? It has no weight in the universe. Or maybe um, your experience of anger has had such a hard edge that when you even read that word, uh, you're just repulsed by it. Um, Because anger to you sounds like irrationality and abuse. Um, And anger can certainly be abused. But the Bible also has a category for appropriate anger. Anger used rightly. Um, Not to crush for crushing's sake, but actually to bring a correct response to the things that are wrong. Not out of control, but appropriate. And that's why this verse that may well stump you when you get to Ephesians 4.26, Apostle Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. He understands that those things are not necessarily the same thing. That there is, in fact, a right place for anger. Or maybe this sounds hard because you think, surely God's anger doesn't apply to Christians. Okay, surely, once you come into a relationship with Jesus, then God's anger doesn't apply to you anymore. But who, who is in this text? It's the people of Israel. It's God's chosen people. And he responds out of his anger towards them. Now, it is certainly true that if you're a Christian, that you are never going to bear the brunt of the wrath of God. You were never going to have to pay for your sin, that that was, in fact, done by Jesus. Now, it's also true, if you're a Christian, that you have been brought into a new family. And we are now, over the course of our lives, learning how to live in that family. In fact, the the overarching concept that Scripture gives us for the way God relates to us now, if you're someone who stepped into his family, is that God disciplines us. He disciplines the people that he loves. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that God makes covenants with his people, that he makes promises to them, that he binds himself to them in love. Here's uh, here's the thing, though. For in the ancient Near East, when these people lived, those covenants were just like the covenants that great kings made with his, a great king would make with his people. A king would bind himself to his people. Here's the thing, if you belong to a great king and you rebel against him, that king is going to bring punishment into into your life to secure your slavery. You will not get away. But here's the difference. Our great king, who makes covenant with us, his people, who speaks his love into our lives, when we err, when we rebel, when we wander away. He also brings discipline, but not to secure our slavery, but to secure our freedom. Because he loves us too much to let us go our own way. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says. This is verses 5 through 11. The writer says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained for it. What's he saying? He's saying that God disciplines his children just as a father disciplines his children, just as I'm learning to discipline Caroline and Henry. When someone else's children act up, as they're wandering around town, I don't discipline them. They're not my children. God disciplines his people for their own good that they might share in his holiness. Now, this is actually freeing for us, though for some of us maybe it's counterintuitive because at some level we ask the question, does anybody really care what I do or care what happens to me? Is anybody watching? Is anybody going to know if I run off the rails? Does, Does my life really have weight? Does it really have value? Do the things that I do really matter? And God tells us in his word that the answer is yes. God cares. He cares about his children enough to keep us from going our own way. If you're someone who's following Jesus, then you're now in a relationship with God that's the context of it's a family bond. And discipline is for those who are in the family. Elizabeth and I have a saying that we use occasionally with each other when, uh, in those moments of hard confrontation. And what we'll say at those times is known and loved. Known and loved. That you are both known by me and also loved by me. To be known but not loved is to be exposed, condemned, lost. This is what frightens us so terribly. That someone would know the truth about me, but not in the same hand have love towards me. Or, the other way this can go wrong, loved but not known, which is only sentimentality with no depth. Because there's no change, there's no confrontation, there's no real pursuit. If you have one without the other, then uh, we have reason to be frightened because everything in our life becomes unbalanced. We're either known and exposed without being loved, or we're loved superficially without really being known. God promises us that in his eyes, through the person of his son Jesus, we're both known and loved. Now, as we talk about God's anger, that is not to make you suddenly paranoid now as you look at all the events of your life. Is God punishing me for something? Did I do something wrong? Is this God's wrath coming upon me? I think we need to see this in the same way we see all things that God brings into our life. Romans 8.1, God uses all things together for the good of those who love him. If you are turning your back on him, if you know that you are in sin, if you're running away from him, then the answer is always, of course. Turn around, repent. This is not to make us paranoid and frightened. It's to actually bring us into freedom. We have a God who loves us enough not to let us go our own way. Now, it's not enough just to say that, God's, that our sin is, is personal and God's anger is personal. This passage also teaches us that God's salvation is personal. Look at verses 9 through 11. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Keniah, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. He judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rashem, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over him. And so the land had rest 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
interesting that God responds to the cry of misery of his people when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. What's interesting about that is it doesn't, the text doesn't explicitly say that the people even repented. God doesn't even wait for that. He hears of them crying out in their misery that this king has brought into their life, and God rushes to bring relief and to bring salvation and to bring healing. God's mercy so often even precedes our repentance. But here's the thing. Only a personal God can give personal forgiveness. Back to the speeding ticket. It's the difference between paying a speeding fine and actually asking for and receiving forgiveness from a friend. One merely pays off a debt, and the other brings a restoration of relationship. If you break the law, the best you can do is make that up somehow, to pay the fine. In the view of the law, the best we can hope for is an absence of infraction. You're not a lawbreaker. But in a relationship with a person, and in fact a relationship with God, goes much deeper that we can in fact be embraced and restored and forgiven. God sends personal deliverance. Uh, the deliverer, the judge in this passage, his name is Othniel. And it says the Spirit of the Lord was on him to deliver his people from oppression. It says the land then had rest here for 40 years, which in the mind of an Israelite would be one generation. And we're going to see this pattern time and again through the book of Judges, that the people err. God brings discipline into their lives, and then he brings salvation and uh, restoration for them. Now, the problem, of course, in this passage comes in um, verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And we're going to see next week as we get into the next passage that the people fall back into the same sin that they were in. What do we need? We need deliverance, just like these people did. We need personal forgiveness for personal offense, just like they did. But we, in fact, actually need a greater deliverance, just like they did. Othniel, at the end of the story, dies. We need a Savior who's actually going to live. We need one who's not going to let us go our own way again. The whole book of Judges screams out, Not only for a salvation, but for a personal salvation. Not only for personal salvation, but for a personal salvation that's actually going to last. This one lasts only 40 years. We we need one that's going to last us for all of eternity. Jesus also had the Spirit of the Lord. He also came to rescue God's people. Like Othniel, he also died. And unlike Othniel, he was also raised to life where he sits at the right hand of the Father, to continually intercede for his people. He brings a salvation just as needed, just as desperate, but so much more lasting. Hebrews 25 says that Jesus, our Savior, now sits at the right hand of the Father where he always lives to make intercession of his people for his people. This glorious one, the Son of God himself, comes and rescues his people. He is the one who takes the wrath. He is the one who takes the brunt of God's anger. He is the one who steps in our place so that God might actually adopt us into his family so that we wouldn't be someone on the outside experiencing the wrath of God, but we would now be brought into the family of God, a family that is so precious to God that he doesn't let us go our own way, that he still brings discipline in our life, not to condemn us, not to crush us, but to liberate us and to free us. 
Now, this is why the Bible makes so much of sin. And this is also why the Bible makes so much more of our Savior. That we are people in desperate straits always. And we have a Savior that meets us in the middle of those. And the final word that God gives us in Jesus is that we, in fact, are known and loved. Your sin matters. It is not hidden. You are known. For those of you who think your sin can't possibly be forgiven, that you are hopeless, God also speaks this word to us. You're not only known, you are also loved. In Christ, those two things are brought together, and we are both known and loved. Let's pray together. Father, we do. We praise you. We come before you and say thank you for the salvation that you bring us in Jesus. Father, I pray for those of us who feel known and exposed and distant, that you would bring comfort and repentance and restoration and let us know that in you we are in fact loved. May we always be people who are turning back to you away from our sin, away from the things that draw us away from you. Lord, we pray that even this week that you remind us that in Jesus we are known and loved. And may we worship and glorify you because you are a God who is personal. You don't stand far off, but you stand next to us and meet us in the midst of the very depths of our need. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.